I'll use this opportunity to invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs. And we'll be, in fact, considering a lesson that will relate in some way to a few of the passages found in that book. And after a few moments of introduction, we'll uh, turn our attention to the book of Proverbs here in just a few moments. I've entitled the lesson tonight, Wisdom Marks the Spot. You may well have remembered reading stories when you were younger, or maybe even recently for some of us, where there's an X that marks a certain place that you look for as a person is seeking treasure. Well, instead of the word X, we're going to give thought to W as it relates to the word wisdom. Wisdom marks the spot tonight. As you and I reflect upon wisdom, we will certainly find a great deal of consideration to be found in that book of Proverbs. These introductory thoughts will be the first ones that we'll consider here shortly. Without a doubt, the Bible lays a great deal of emphasis on the topic of wisdom. If I could invite you to notice as we give thought initially to Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 7. Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 7. It may well be a familiar matter, but listen to how strongly the language is presented to you and to me. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. I might say in some ways that is almost the final consideration in that the two verses prior to it had read like this. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, the word her referring to wisdom, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is highlighted then before us as the principal thing. That is to say, above all else, we should desire to acquire it, to live by it, to appreciate it, and we're promised that it will preserve us. It has a preserving effect. It has an effect that results in, a, in an essence of keeping. It is with that in mind that I would ask you to notice that the encouragement then of this passage, and yea, many others, will be to acquire, to seek after, to in fact be a person who is wise. You would have every right, though, as we each would, to ask, does the Bible give us any indication? Where is this wisdom found? What are some ways in which it is acquired? Well, tonight we will at least scratch a bit of the surface connected to them, and we'll do that in light of this next slide at least as we begin. Let's try to give some feeling, some appreciation as to a biblical definition. What is wisdom? May I begin by saying that there are many supposed sources of wisdom, and there are many influences which purport to be wise and which will insist that there is a great wisdom to be found in it. But we aren't interested in hearsay, and we are not interested, you see, in what the populace or majority may feel. If the Word of God has already instituted and encouraged that wisdom is the principal thing, might it also inform us as to where that wisdom is found? Might it also inform us as to some details or considerations of it? It does indeed. Let's start at the top of that slide. You and I know that in 31 chapters, the book of Proverbs highlights so many aspects of wisdom. In fact, it has often been highlighted that at least a third, if not half the book, centers almost exclusively on details directly connected to wisdom. It is, with that to be noted, 
Look at these following observations with me, please. The word wisdom comes from the word wise. Well, you and I have some feeling, I suppose, as to what it means to be wise. It relates to having sound judgment. It involves a soundness of precept. It seems to involve an essence of utilizing what one has at disposal in a way, in light of the way that things will work out. In many ways, it seems to me, that's a fine, practical way of considering it. Wisdom is rather different than knowledge. Because in wisdom, you are appreciating in light of choices and decisions that are made and what that's going to lead to. How will it turn out if one pursues a course based upon those decisions, those sets of actions, those principal ways of thinking? Where will it lead? May I offer to you, there is a great deal of common sense in many ways connected to that. Do you remember perhaps a father or grandfather or other family member, perhaps a mother or otherwise, who just knew that if you kept doing that and if you pursued what was involved in that, that it was going to lead nowhere good? Quite often, I suspect, that discipline was measured in light of those kind of choices with the hope that you would learn the character and seriousness of it and that we would not continue that course of action. But you see, they knew how it was going to turn out. You may notice about the middle of that slide, and we've already pointed it out, that knowledge and wisdom thus are, are rather separate. They're quite distinct. Knowledge is a set of facts. That doesn't directly relate to how a set of facts and decisions may ultimately turn out. I suppose each of us can then be thankful for the guiding force which wisdom may well provide. The guiding force of wisdom is highlighted in one of the slash statements upon that particular slide. Would you notice with me, it allows us to use wisdom, or rather to use knowledge appropriately. One of the last thoughts on that slide might then be this. Isn't it true that the opposite of wisdom is foolishness? The absolute opposite to it is nothing but that. Isn't it interesting in that light and connection that we're each encouraged to be very careful about what we allow to influence our life? Do you and I allow those things that are forceful and filled with wisdom to bring the influences that are so mighty in the course that you and I pursue? It is a great question, isn't it? In many ways, the Word of God throughout encourages us to be those who are, quite frankly, influenced by that which is right and that which is filled with wisdom. As you close that particular slide with me, I think that it might be fair to then ask, what about the Word of God's statements relative to the source of wisdom? Without a doubt, the book of Proverbs will have a lot to say about that as well. In fact, while you're at that same chapter, chapter number 4, turn back a couple of chapters. And let's start in Proverbs chapter 2, verse number 6. Proverbs chapter 2, verse number 6. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. 
And so isn't it true that there are three entities, three matters which are addressed here, and one of them is this interesting truth, that the Lord giveth wisdom. Isn't it true that there certainly is a sense of common sense, which many people may have who really are not that knowledgeable of the Word of God, but the kind of wisdom that occupies the highest echelon of desire, the highest place of pursuit would be wisdom which one would appreciate as having God as the source. That truly is a great question, isn't it, for each person? Are you and I guided by that wisdom which God provides? The wisdom which He has detailed and the wisdom that He has revealed. As you attach that to the previous slide, notice, the Word of God then is able to tell us how things will turn out. What about the choices and decisions that I make? The Word of God will tell me and tell you exactly how those things will turn out. May I point out that in one sense that's profound because all of us want to know in some way we are encouraged and we're often questioning as to what the future holds. Isn't it amazing? This book will tell us. This book will detail for your life and mine exactly how things will turn out, what things will be like. Will my family life be good? What about the other aspects of my life, be it related to the further aspects of employment, the considerations of decisions? What about my children? How will it turn out? May I point out that the concept of wisdom is in very strong and it attaches to you and me in a sense of opening up some of the grandest of desires. That is to say, pulling back the curtain of the future and allowing us to gain a feeling, a sense, as to how things will turn out. That text in Proverbs 2.6 isn't the only one. The lesson text tonight, Brother Dennis read from Proverbs 9, verse number 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begins from an early age with a healthy respect for the God of heaven. That degree of respect leading us to not only be mindful of His existence, but to respect Him enough to trust in what He says and to do what He has bidden us. To be obedient individuals. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I might point out that the nature of that consideration starts like this. The beginning of it. That is to say, you'll not even get off the ground in light of being a wise person, ultimately, unless there is a healthy respect for and a trust in the God of heaven. You and I know today that so often there are forces and influences which are brought to bear which are quite distinct from this book. I know quite well that some of those can be from the mouths of rather supposedly learned people. Those who have quite respectful letters following their name, be it Ph.D., Th.D., or otherwise. And as you and I appreciate the place of education, one of the first things it does remind us is that this book highlights that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've invited you to notice on that slide then at least a number of considerations from the Word of God itself. Now, these aren't found identically in the book of Proverbs, but have you ever given thought to what they would have been perceived in light of wisdom or lack thereof. I think it's at least an interesting thought consideration. 
In Joshua chapters 6 and 7, you remember the scene rather well when the people of Israel were now prepared to battle against Jericho. And you and I recall how that worked out in that. The people of God were successful. The walls of Jericho fell and God's people overwhelmed the city with relatively little difficulty. But yet, Achan spied something that was rather valuable. And you and I recall he took it. Despite the fact that God had said all of the spoils of the city are to be remaining in, if you please, the treasury connected to the Lord. And so when he took that Babylonish garment and that wedge of gold and silver, that was not, of course, what was to be done. But could I ask, from an earthly standpoint, might that have appeared with an element of wisdom? After all, these people are the enemies of God. They are these Canaanite peoples, and we are the people of God. We are going to overrun that place, and we're going to make that territory devoted to the God of heaven. After all, my family and I have struggled. We've traveled for all these years of wilderness wandering. What will it hurt? And won't it be true that that wedge of gold and that silver can be of such great value to us, it will allow us to better sacrifice to the Lord? It will allow us to be better equipped as His servants. Sounds like wisdom in the mind of some, doesn't it? And yet, you and I recall that God knew that Achan had took it, and yet, when they were defeated at the next battle at Ai, Joshua fell on his face, praying unto God, God, how is it that you allowed us victory at Jericho, and now we've been beaten at Ai? God said, Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. What may have appeared wisdom to Achan or others, God calls sin. Isn't that interesting? What man may have called wisdom, God called it sin. What about that second one in 2 Kings, the fifth chapter? You remember the scene well. There was a gentleman named Naaman. He was a leper. It was the case, you see, that he was informed that there was a prophet in Israel who might do something about that. As that saga unfolded in that chapter, you recall that ultimately an arrangement was made whereby Naaman came to the place wherein he might find relief. Elisha did not even come out of the house, but rather gave orders as to what the man needed to do. But you remember, after all that took place, he finally did go to the Jordan River and dipped seven times and found cure from his leprosy. But you may notice that on the slide I ask you to observe Gehazi. Gehazi was Elisha's servant. I wonder what role he had to play in this episode, and it was this one. Gehazi witnessed what beautiful and fanciful gifts that Naaman was prepared to give to Elisha because of the cure of leprosy that he had received. But Elisha said, I don't want it. I didn't cure you to, to receive these kinds of complimentary gifts. You may recall that as the king, I'm sorry, as Naaman proceeded to, to leave, he took, of course, all those gifts with him. But Gehazi ran after him. Now, he wasn't sent by Elisha, of course, but he ran after him and he said, Excuse me, but my master has changed his mind. Some visitors have come and we would very much like... My master would very much appreciate if you would give and donate some of those things that you had. 
Naaman was very happy, of course, to do so. He was appreciative and thankful. And so Gehazi took the gifts. But when he got back home, Elisha said, Gehazi, where were you? My heart went with you when you went. Elisha knew where he'd been. And the text ends in that chapter this way, that the leprosy that had been upon Naaman was now brought upon Gehazi. You see, what men may have thought was wise, what was the harm in it? Here was another heathen person, and surely those gifts that he had available could be used to great benefit for Elisha. Couldn't he have done great work with it? But yet that was not the idea, and what men might have called wisdom, God sufficiently punished with perpetual leprosy. Something to think about, isn't it? The world's estimation of wisdom is so often misguided, so often misinformed. Look at that third one in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David was the king, of course. He had at his disposal the various elements of the empire, and that included women. It is sad to observe, of course, he was a married man. And yet he espied Bathsheba from a distance while she was washing herself, and of course adultery was committed and you and I remember that what some would view as an affair, as an episode of frolic. God said, the sin will never depart. The sword will never depart from your house. Isn't it interesting how differently God can view things that man might call some element of pleasure or wisdom? The last two are these. Mordecai in the book of Esther. As the book of Esther unfolds before us, you and I remember what a powerful figure of influence Mordecai turned out to be. He was a person who had influence even at this time, but Haman had more. And isn't it true that Haman concocted a scheme whereby Mordecai would be killed? Oddly enough, the very gallows that Mordecai was supposed to be killed on was the very gallows that Haman ended up killed on. And it surely is interesting to notice that the features that related to what men may have thought was wise were so different than what turned out to be real wisdom. I suppose some might think, well, if everybody in the empire bows before me, but this Mordecai doesn't, then surely to enforce him to do so might be far better in the element of serviceability in the kingdom. But yet it didn't turn out that way. The final example is Daniel, as well as his three friends. I suspect that many would be quick to say, wouldn't it have been wiser to just simply do what the king asked? Bow down before that image. Don't really mean anything by it. Just do it because everyone does it. Let's get out of this episode so we can go on living and serving God. But the three friends didn't do it. The three friends told, quite frankly, the king and said, Be it known to you, our God can deliver us, but if He chooses not to do so, we want you to understand we will not bow down to that image. They were cast into a fiery furnace, of course. But surely in the light of that deliverance, you and I notice how it worked out. Can't we be at least mindful of how that the world's wisdom can be so distinct and so different? 
As far as where wisdom comes from, though, it certainly comes from God. In James chapter 1, verse 5, one of the last verses noted at the top of that slide. If any man like wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. May I encourage each of us to be those who would pray for wisdom. To pray that, in fact, we might be those of greater insight and prudence. It surely is one thing to be thankful for gentlemen as elders who are supposed to be those with a degree of insight and prudence who, because they can see how things will turn out, they are entrusted with guiding a local congregation of the Lord's people. You and I, as we strive to be wise, it surely encourages us to close that slide and just ask where else it leads us. What about some more thoughts? concerning the obtaining of wisdom. As you begin at the top of that slide with me, may I suggest there are several things that the world may well suggest as critical elements in the obtaining of wisdom. Everything from entertainment to various aspects of mirth and pleasure. Certain things related to accomplishments. What is it that you or I are able to attach to that which we've done? To that list... We might also add the reflections of education. May I point out that it would seem that our world has very overwhelmingly begun to think of wisdom connected almost exclusively to advanced education. Now, not many may come out to say that, but it sure seems the practical import of at least the common way of viewing things. And so we happily send our youngsters who are by that time teenagers or more, to these advanced places of learning, we anticipate that they will become not only knowledgeable, but those who are skilled in wisdom. And yet so often we find that though some knowledge becomes theirs, a great deal of wisdom is lacking. A great deal of wisdom is not to be found. As you look further in that list, sometimes connection to possessions all of these are mentioned in Ecclesiastes, the second chapter. There's also the opportunity for position. We noticed in a lesson not too many Sundays ago now, one of the things about success, what is it that makes a person successful? We found in the course of that study that, that those categories and those features that are often utilized as approval marks in that are nowhere to be found in the Word of God. But rather, as you close that slide with me, look at some of these statements that are true biblical wisdom. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in verity, in faith, in purity. And surely there are several elements of that list that immediately pass the consideration of being so very intriguing. What about the words that you and I choose to use? Are they the earmarks of a person who is wise? That's a good question, isn't it? Especially when we remember passages like Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Is the language that I speak in that for you as well? Is it language that edifies those who hear us? 
does it leave a very definite impression of a person who's not only given to what's right, but who chooses his or her words with care? Not in a way to put stumbling blocks before others, but in that way that is highlighted as being a genuine example. I've also asked you to notice in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Those who are younger, you and I can perhaps remember what some of those youthful lusts can be. How one can be encouraged to pursue things that quite frankly are hurtful for oneself and for others, but it's under the banner of youthful lusts. Can you remember some of the things that were so high in its pursuit in, say, high school years? Things as you look back on now and say, I can't believe I chose to do that. Whether it be elements that, quite frankly, had some danger in it. Elements that had quite a bit of risk involved but all under the banner of friendliness, all under the banner of fun and enjoying oneself. And yet as one looks back upon it, you ask, that really wasn't terribly wise. Look what could have turned out to be the case. And so you and I, as those that are older, not only encourage wisdom in ourselves, but how often does the Word of God help us see that the hoary head... The one who is seasoned in experience is often the best suited to look back and to appreciate how things can turn out and how they do turn out in light of certain choices. Oh, how you and I, though young we may be, may we realize that those that are older, under love and under great interest and in information, can often share such beautiful nuggets of wisdom and wonderful nuggets of truth. As you close that particular slide with me, isn't it true then that that same book that we referenced earlier, the book of Ecclesiastes in 12 chapters, marches one by one before us and it highlights in us a number of powerful elements of wisdom, simple things about life as to how it's going to turn out. Is it any wonder though the book closes in chapter 12 verse 13? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing according to the earth done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. What an interesting insistence. This is the conclusion of the whole matter. It's not the elements earlier listed on that slide. That does not make the conclusion of the whole matter. Inasmuch as you and I have noted then that the fact is that God is the ultimate source of wisdom, and yet He has communicated with us through the agency you and I recognize as the Word of God, the Bible, the holy text, the marvelous volume. And so, what questions ought we to ask? I've listed some at the bottom of that slide. When you and I then pursue wisdom, do we ask it of the right person? Do we seek it in the right place? In our pursuit of wisdom, do we turn to this book? We know that men, in almost all cases, do not. They think wisdom is found somewhere else. Under the agency of scholarship, under the agency of what they prefer, under the agency of modern scientific recognition, 
That's by and large many of the guiding elements of what you and I seemingly hear filling the news day by day. What about, though, the Word of God? When the Word of God is presented, do you and I allow that Word to touch our life, to bring about change if that change is in order? To bring about change if that change is what would be consistent with the Word of God? That question can only be addressed in a personal way. I must answer for me as you, of course, do for you. The Word of God says, of course, exactly what it says, and it isn't going to change. As you close that slide, isn't it true that the Word of God throughout would also beg some, some of the following observations? Think just briefly about the churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ insisted that wisdom prevail. Have you ever thought about, though, what would happen if it didn't? And the issues that the Lord promised, He said, I'll remove your candlestick. Revelation chapters 1 and 2. And yet, that was to happen if there was not reaction, if there was not response according to what would be appropriate in the Word of God. Wisdom also, you see, involves change if that change is in order. Because it'll tell me how things will turn out if I don't change. What if my viewpoint stays the same and I never change? The Word of God tells exactly what shall befall me, what exactly shall happen. One last set of observations, and the lesson will be yours tonight. There are some other things we seemingly learn with such ready consideration in the Word of God about wisdom, and it's this. There are certain things, as great as wisdom is, that it does not produce. There's no guarantee of these, even if one is biblically wise. First, wisdom is not a guarantee of the absence of challenge and difficulty. One may know how it's going to turn out, but due to the influence of others, hardship and affliction, and yea, even persecution will come otherwise. So wisdom is not a guarantee of ease or of absence of difficulty. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 2 reminds us of that truth, doesn't it? Not only that, wisdom is surely not a guarantee of material prosperity. In fact, quite the opposite. There will be many instances where those who are the richest people on earth are not rich materially. But oh, how rich they are in faith. How rich they are in what ultimately matters the most. I invited you to notice just one verse about that one. Did Jesus speak along those lines to that rich young ruler? He was rich. The text says that. But you see, that element in richness separated him from his maker. And in that regard, Jesus said there's something needful. But sadly, we have no indication he changed. But in the third place, Wisdom is not popular, and we just as well get used to that. In the sense of worldly popularity, wisdom biblically is not going to fall in that category. Others may well shun us. Others may well insult us. Others motivated by what they sense as genuine wisdom, though it's not, may look upon us and call us names, and they may even make references to us that they intend to be insulting. May I say, there could even be other consequences as well. 
But that doesn't change the fact that their perception of wisdom is not wisdom. Wisdom, as you and I have learned tonight, as revealed in the Word of God, has to do with a soundness and biblical judgment in which one knows, foresees how things are going to turn out. It is for that reason I even ask you to note this one that we mentioned earlier. There are many intelligent people in our world, highly intelligent individuals, but they are fools. They are not wise biblically. And the Word of God on more than one occasion brings to our mind the reality and the sadness of that condition. Jeremiah 9 maybe is the premier Old Testament one. But surely we'd be quick to remember that more than one New Testament one falls in that category as well. It might do us well to remember the setting of the church at Corinth. You recall that Corinth was located, you see, in a position where they enjoyed the matters connected to what this world would regard as wisdom. And in fact, Paul opened the first Corinthian letter by inviting them to notice that what the world calls wisdom is foolishness with God. And he said that directly and without apology. Isn't it also true that right near the end of the book of 1 Timothy, there's another reminder that what the world often calls knowledge and that which is proper pursuit is not so. It is not really that way. The oppositions of science, falsely so-called. It's no wonder that you and I have before us, of course, the grandest of all volumes. And we wish to be guided principally by it because that will make one wise. In the very last verse of the book of Hosea, Hosea 14.9, we read, Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them, for the way of the Lord is right. And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. Who is wise? This is what will make a person wise. As we close that slide and close our lesson tonight, we surely would be fair to say that wisdom can be rather challenging and demanding because it goes against the grain of what the world would regard as wisdom. And therefore, what is often looked upon in the life of a person genuinely wise will be looked upon with great suspicion. I close that slide like this. How often, though, does the Word of God encourage us that wisdom, as the Bible presents it, does produce happiness? It does generate that, and surely isn't that something that we yearn for? Isn't it something that our world seemingly is in high pursuit of? And yet... The very place where it can be found is the very last place that some choose to look. The very last place that one finds as a source for it. Aren't we thankful for the Word of God, thankful for the Bible, and thankful that God has revealed to us what true wisdom is? Wisdom is certainly very important. Why don't we close the lesson with a verse we begin with, Proverbs 4-7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all thy getting, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. We've tried to highlight tonight, using the Word of God, a reminder of how important those matters are. As we do that, we certainly are prepared to remember that wisdom is found in the Word of God, because God is its source. As you and I analyze ourselves, examining ourselves whether we be in the faith, if we have come to be an unwise person, 
it's time to do something about it. It's time to, in fact, make some of those changes that we listened to earlier. Maybe I've come to start finding my supposed wisdom in my job. Or perhaps in the other elements such as recreation, laxity, entertainment, or otherwise. Or maybe I've found, apparently, some wisdom connected to my overseeing of others, my skill in overseeing projects or otherwise, and there are those very skilled in that. But you and I know that whatever our skill set or talent set may be, we wish to use them under the banner of service to the King. Are you and I wise? Given that it's the principal thing, we as always would wish to extend the Lord's invitation. If you've never become a Christian... The first step in being a wise person would be the very one of becoming a child of the King, being a member of His body, to appreciate then that the source of wisdom and the beauty of that confession that's made. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And with those words as a guidepost for life, one is able to appreciate the earnestness and the genuine truth and value of wisdom. If it's the case that you would wish to become a Christian tonight, that's done simply by following what the Lord revealed, believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, and being baptized. If you have known that way of life and maybe appreciated for some period of time the genuine strength found in wisdom related to it, but perhaps over the course of time, tangents have been selected. Decisions have been made which have now led you to a place that maybe the Word of God said it would lead you to, but you didn't believe it. Or maybe you thought that you otherwise could ultimately do better still. But yet, God's Word has come to pass. And you are exactly now where you do not want to be. You know the Lord still loves you. And He would wish to put you back on that narrow course that leads to everlasting life. If sin has then come to be a habitual matter in life, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf to the God of heaven. If you'll repent of those sins, make confession of them, He's promised to forgive you. You could then be regarded as a genuinely wise person in the eyes of the only one that really matters, the God of heaven. Tonight, wisdom is the principal thing. May we each be encouraged and always living a life in course related to the beauty of that wisdom. If there's anyone in this assembly tonight and we could be of some help to you at this moment, we would love to do that. Brother Larry has chosen a psalm of encouragement. If you would wish to come, won't you do it while together we stand and while we sing?